We have been in this, this series on the Apostles' Creed. Uh, we started it last week, and, and one of the things I mentioned last week is that, that belief ha- has taken on all kinds of different meanings, has gone all kinds of different directions in, in our world today. We're, we're told that we can believe in ourselves with wonderful motivational posters. Or with with children's books, we're we're told that we can believe that we will win if we're on a sports team of some sort. It can mean to have hope, to be confident, or to place a stake in the ground and say, this is where I stand. Everything that I do is built off of this, this foundation. We're looking at our beliefs through the lens of the Apostles' Creed over the next few weeks because it's important to have a shared language for the essentials of our faith and to be connected to what followers of Christ have believed throughout generations and believe around the world. So we began last week by unpacking that that first line, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Today we're turning to the second person in the Trinity where we'll be next week as well, exploring what we believe about Jesus and specifically this morning about what we believe with Jesus' human identity, his earthly identity. This is one of the the hard parts to unpack, right, about who, who Jesus was and is, that Jesus was fully human and fully God. So this morning, while we we talk about the the fully human component, we can't forget the fully God component, but Pastor Dale is going to unpack that that fully God moment next next week um, for us. While the creed only gives one line to God the Father, it spends a good amount of time with what we claim to believe about Jesus. And that's because what we believe really does hinge on the idea that, that Jesus was the Messiah that was talked about in the Hebrew Scriptures. So the beginning of, of John's Gospel, what Faith read a part of earlier, it, it connects the Creator God, that, that God that we affirm in the first line with the Creed, to the Son, to Jesus. So after we begin with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and everything that was created was created through Him. After we, we begin with that, we get to this, this part in John, in the first chapter of John, where, where John the Baptist is talked about, and he said, hey, I've come to prepare the way, and prepare the way for the, the one who fulfills all the prophecies. He's here. I, I'm the one who's, who's preparing the way. And then we get to this line in John 1.14. The Word became flesh. And blood, as Eugene Peterson puts it, and moved into the neighborhood. The Word, the one who was there in the beginning, became flesh and blood and dwelt with humankind and dwells with us. Our second passage this morning comes from Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. And he's, he's encouraging the church there to be Christ-like in all that they do, in the way that they interact with one another, in the way that they live their lives. He tells them to be of one mind, to remain humble, to look toward the interests of other people. And then he includes a few lines, a few lines that, that many 
Bible scholars believe were a hymn of sorts for the early church. And that's some of what we're about to read. He uses shared language, shared language, not all that different from the Apostles' Creed, to remind them of who they are and of what followers of Christ believe. Starting at chapter 2, verse 5, we read this. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If any of you know that passage well and you wanted to keep going, don't worry, we're going to get there next week. Uh, I'm curious, did, did, any of you, did any of you watch the coronation yesterday? Any of you watch the coronation yesterday? I uh, um, totally forgot it was happening. Between Piper's birthday and all of our, our, our weekend happenings, I, I, I totally forgot it was happening until I saw on, on social media that a, a friend of mine from Malawi, he, he, he commented on it and he talked about uh, how he was kind of floored by all of the traditions that were preserved in it, passed down from one generation to the next. And, and he was commenting saying, wow. As my own culture, he was speaking as his own culture, as his Malawian culture was progressing and moving forward, he was lamenting some of the traditions that had been forgotten in his own culture. Now, whether or not we pay attention to the British royal family, there's something to be said for an event taking place that hasn't happened for for over 70 years. Anybody actually, like, go full-on, like, Tea and biscuits while they watched? No, no one. Okay. For some, the traditions, the pomp and circumstance of it all projects stability and strength. It projects uh, perseverance, greatness. For others, it's much more complicated. Now, when the ancient world thought of strength, when the ancient world thought of perseverance, when it thought of greatness, the image that most people thought of was Alexander the Great and the empire that he led. Alexander became king of Macedonia when he was only 20 years old. Then he conquered Greece. By the time he was 33 and when he died, the borders of his kingdom extended from Greece all the way in to Persia. His death launched a, a void of leadership, and so the Hellenistic era was, was born. Years later, in first century Rome, the closest thing to Alexander was Emperor Augustus. He put an end to a long civil war where people were were clamoring for a leader, someone to to be in charge. Many in ancient Greece and in first century Rome, they went as far as saying that Alexander and Augustus couldn't just be human. They simply had accomplished too much. So in addition to being human, they they had to also be divine. Does that sound familiar to, to, to anyone? You all should be nodding your head and say, yeah, that, that, does, that does make sense. So again, uh, Dale's going to be talking through Jesus' divine identity next week. Um, but the main reason Christians got into trouble in the, in the Roman world was because they called Jesus Lord. 
They placed him above the emperor. So in the second part of the Apostles' Creed, really the first part of the second lines of the Apostles' Creed, we, we, we see three claims made about Jesus' earthly identity. And the three claims aren't just important for our doctrine. Doctrine meaning what we believe in. They're also practical implications that should guide how we live out our faith in our, our daily lives. First, we claim that, that Jesus is both the Christ and our Lord. So when Christians in the first century made this claim, they were making this, this dramatic statement. The most literal translation of Christ is, is Messiah or, or anointed one. Over centuries of oppression, over centuries of exile, Israel's people, they had grown tired of waiting. And they're looking for the one person who is going to build the kingdom back up. Build the kingdom back up to what it was under David's rule. Someone who would lead a charge against Rome or anyone else who was a threat. This person, the Christ was chosen in a lot of people's mind to return God's people to a place of prominence. So as we talked about a, a few weeks ago, before we got into this, this series, uh, when, when Pilate asks Jesus, are you really the king of the Jews? He's saying, are you really the one who's going to, to launch this revolution? Are you really a threat to me? So as the Apostles' Creed began to take shape, it was essential to make clear, yeah, Jesus really is that one. He really is that one. Even if the revolution didn't look like everybody thought it was going to look like. There was also a group of people in 2nd century Rome, again, while the Apostles' Creed was, was kind of taking shape and beginning in the, to, to, to form a group of people who claimed to be Christians, but who wanted to distance themselves from any sort of, of Jewish thought, any sort of Jewish belief. So they thought that, that Jesus' coming was the starting of something new. The starting of something brand new. By writing that Jesus is Christ and the Apostles' Creed. The writers of the Creed, they, they combat that line of thinking. And they, com they connect our belief with the messianic prophecies of the Hebrew Scripture. About 50 years after Jesus' crucifixion, Roman emperors, they started using this, this phrase, Lord, more often. Whenever there was a, a threat against the emperor's throne, those who supported the new ruler would gather together. They'd burn incense in, incense in front of a, a large image of this new candidate, and they would essentially create a worship service around the new Lord. For the early Christian, saying that Jesus is our Lord was blasphemous against the state of Rome. It meant that their loyalty wasn't first and foremost to their country, but to their God. Now, I'm not sharing this to make a, a political indictment or a rallying cry of, of any kind, but I do think it's important that we understand that when we claim that Jesus is Lord, it's not just a religious statement. I think if we're honest, we sometimes tend to think of 
our, our commitment to Christ alongside our other commitments. Our other commitments, our, our family, our nation, our work, our church, whatever it might be. But when the early church claimed that, that Jesus was Lord, it meant that their commitments to everything else was secondary. Jesus being Lord meant Jesus was Lord. He was the primary Lord and everything else was secondary. The second claim that we, we see about Jesus' earthly identity is that he was completely human. He was, he was in fact born. Now as a, a teenager, I remember sitting in church and, and, and hearing the, the Apostles' Creed or reciting the Apostles' Creed and being completely, completely confused by the line conceived by the Holy Spirit. I mean, in middle school, we covered reproduction and biology. It was a class that I'll never forget. Miss Cameron was the name of my teacher. Miss Cameron made me stand on the table and shout words that I can't repeat in church until I could do them without laughing. I kind of knew when I heard the Apostles' Creed how things worked. But the way folks in the first century talked about and understood reproduction was different than how my sixth grade teacher taught it. Science wasn't nearly as sophisticated. So what they'd primarily do is they would, they would point to, to what they could see, meaning what they could see with, with crops, with plants. They knew that if you planted a seed in a, a fertile field, it would grow. A child would take on characteristics of their mother because in the same way good soil provides nourishment for a plant, a womb provided nourishment for a child. So when we claim that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, we're, we're not making a biological claim. We're making a theological claim. It was a miracle. We're affirming something incredibly important. Jesus... Jesus was the Son of God from the very beginning. It wasn't like He became the Son of God later in life. Jesus was the Son of God from the very beginning, from the the time that He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Oddly enough, many of the people who confronted Christianity early uh, early on in its existence, they didn't didn't question Jesus' divinity. They they questioned His his humanness. They, they, They questioned how human he was. They thought he he just appeared to be a man, but wasn't human at all. So the Apostles' Creed claims that Jesus was born just like any other person. And at the same time, because of the way his earthly existence came to be, his birth was unlike any other. And that's true for his death as well. Now there's a, a few reasons Pontius Pilate is included here. In the Apostles' Creed. And, and chief among them is the importance of putting a time stamp on when Jesus' ministry happened and on when Jesus' life and death took place. All four of the Gospels, they go out of their way to mention that, that Jesus physically died, so the Creed affirms that. Each of them write about his last breath or, or having a, a spear placed in his side as water flowed down from it. Now, the group that I mentioned, the, 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 the earliest critics of Christianity, 
that struggled with accepting Jesus' divine identity. Or sorry, excuse me, struggled with accepting his human identity. That They looked at his death and they saw, well, this is just a facade. This is just a, a cover-up of some sort. And so the, the writers of the Apostles' Creed, they combat that line of thinking by saying, in the same way that we believe that he was born fully human, we believe that he suffered a fully human death. Before we can begin to talk about resurrection, we have to claim that Jesus really died. So when we affirm that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is Lord, we're saying that our, our commitment, our commitment to Him is primary. It's first. Everything else is secondary. When we affirm that He was really born and that He really died, we're saying that He was fully human. He felt the same emotions that you and I feel. He was tired. He was hungry. He was happy. He was sad. And everything in between. As we affirm His humanness, we begin to grasp just how incredible the resurrection, the resurrection, the feat of conquering death, really is. And we begin to understand the sort of kingdom that He's inviting us to be a part of. One of the early myths around the Apostles' Creed was that it was comprised of, of words from the apostles themselves, from Jesus' first followers, and we now know that, that that wasn't necessarily true. But it does summarize their teaching. It does summarize their teaching, which is why we call it the Apostles' Creed. And when we read passages like what we read in, in, in Philippians, this, this hymn, and I would encourage you to go home and, and read through all of Philippians 2, 5 through 11. We can picture a group reciting them together, singing them together, placing a, a stake in the ground and saying, this is where our belief begins, with who Jesus was and who Jesus is. Our beliefs are, are shaped by our words, and they're also shaped by our actions. So as we sing songs of praise, as we, we write songs, our beliefs are shaped. As we return to Scripture, our beliefs are shaped. As we share in liturgy in church on Sunday morning, as we pray together, our beliefs are shaped. And as we gather at the table, our beliefs are shaped. 